Welcome to Resilience Radio, Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. Brought to you by Frame of Mind Coaching, transforming your world. So what I love most about the Frame of Mind Coaching system is that um, it really goes deep and it gets to the crux of uh, your belief system and things that might be holding you back from taking action or moving forward. So I came to Frame of Mind Coaching about five years ago and I would have to say that the community of people that I am now involved with is the most invaluable piece of the entire experience. Frame of Mind Coaching has changed my life in every facet. My personal life with my kids, with my wife, my marriage has exponentially changed. Frame of Mind Coaching was such a transformational experience. That's definitely one word I would describe it as. And now, here's your host and the founder of Frame of Mind Coaching, Kim Addis. Welcome, this is Kim Addis from Frame of Mind Coaching, and I am the host of Resilience Radio, where my guests are professionals who are experts at crushing the tough stuff. Today, my guest is Charles Stevenson from Australia. Charles, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Kim. How are you? Great. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Charles, you are a war veteran. And you are um, living in Australia. Before we get into what you do now, tell us a little bit about your history as a soldier. Yeah, so as a child, um, I always wanted to be a soldier, and that's all I would think about. And so when I would turn 17, I joined the Army and um, spent 16 years as a full-time soldier. So lived out my, my childhood dream and um, did all the things you knew, you do, you know, the military train and train and and that's a big part of military life to be prepared to go to war. So I spent a lot of years doing that and I guess you get what you wish for and uh, I found myself in um, East Timor uh, and I, I had two deployments to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2012 as a, as a combat team medic. Okay. And so what did you have to do as a medic? What did you see? What were you exposed to? And, and like, I'm not so exposed to the life of a soldier. I only know what I know about it from movies and television. So give us a little bit of a more frontline view. Sure. Um, so, uh, for soldiers, when they deploy, you know, you can be exposed to everything from, you know, uh, successful missions where you might be um, clearing a certain area or searching for particular people. Um, as a medic, uh, you're there to, to look after your own troops, but also there can be times when you're called on to, to help the local population as well. So I was um, you know, ready, re- really prepared for medi- uh, clinically, medically prepared to, to handle those sort of things that you see during war, you know, military wartime injuries like blast injuries and bullet injuries and stuff and as well as that um just just normal sort of things that happen as well so people get the flu and people um might break their arm falling down a well or you know anything like that so um i guess uh, and we had a we had a, a lot of preparation a lot of training and and i was really sort of rare, raring to go when i got there especially on my first deployment in 2009 um and that was a, a huge eye-opener for me and there was things that you just can't be prepared for things that 
um, you know, happen to to people's bodies when they're exposed to to huge blasts and and things like that. So, um, so give give us a little more detail. I know that it may be a little gruesome, and I apologize in advance if it is. But like, what weren't you prepared for? What happened that you didn't expect? What were you exposed to that kind of like shocked you a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's no problem. So I, um, you know, saw the inside of people's bodies, you know, inside of people's skulls and whatever. Uh, hopefully that's not too graphic. That's good. Um, but just, yeah, p- people just completely shredded by um, by blast injuries. And usually it was people who um, were innocent. There was times where um, a certain group of children would be targeted and the only, you know, group of, of injured people were, were children, small children that had been specifically targeted by um, certain um organizations so yeah there's things like that uh, as a father um probably one of the worst situations i was involved in was um treating a little girl that was the same age as my daughter at the time she was one um mm. and it just I, I was then up until you know it, t- it took me five years to not um correlate that girl with my daughter if i saw my daughter i'd think of the girl if i thought about the girl i'd think of my daughter with the same injuries mm. uh and and she was um horribly uh injured so you know i would have to hold her, hold my daughter's foot um just to make sure that it was still there and yeah so it was just a, it was hard to be able to pull myself back out of that situation even though it had been a few years since i'd been in that situation so we're going to come to that your kind of uh, the aftermath of that. But while you were in it, what was your responsibility? I mean, were you just helping them make a transition from life to death? Like, were you helping people die more comfortably? Or were you trying to keep them alive? Like, what was your role? What, what, what did you see as your primary function or purpose in that environment? Yeah, so um, my role i guess was sort of like if you're thinking in the civilian world like a, the role of a paramedic but also an emergency department so um it was to to do life-saving care um to rule out things that will kill someone within the first hour and then be able to get them back to a level of care that's higher that they can you know maybe go into operating theater and have emergency surgery and things like that so yeah it was always to um to i guess Without making it sound overdramatic, it's it was really life-saving care a lot of the time. Okay. And I'm guessing that you also saw a lot of death. Yeah, yeah. And because that's something that you can hear all you want about it, you can watch videos or read books about what it's going to be like. And I had already been um, a, a paramedic um, in, in the ambulance service in the town where I live beforehand. But, yeah, there just is, is no way to prepare you for the – the brutal numbers that I was seeing. And I started out counting um, the people that were dying in front of me. And then I realized that's really not a healthy way to be, um, you know, notching that up as, as memories of, of how gruesome the situation was. So I tried to avoid doing that, but yeah, it was just, it was all around me. There was um, a lot of death, but you did save a lot of lives. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. Okay. So then you came home after that, after your term in 2009, when did you come home? Um, yeah, so I came back in um, mid in July 2009. Um, okay. Yeah. 
And I mean, according to you, you say that people thought you were a little different when you came back. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, and the insidious thing is that you don't see it in yourself. But yeah, I had a short fuse with um, with my family. I've got a, a wife and and three little children. Um, and uh, and I was never really home. I I never actually unpacked my bags um, after I got home in two thousand nine. Um, and I was always hoping to go back. I was prepared to go back. And in two thousand twelve, I got um, that wish came true, and and I did go back. Okay, so from 2009 to 2012, you just hung out waiting to go back. Yeah, yeah, I did. That's all I would think about. Yeah, Yeah. so explain to me the thinking. You were just in the most gruesome, most brutal, most heartbreaking environment and situation, but you still wanted to go back. Why is that? Yeah, it's not a – there's probably not a logical way to think about it, but I felt like there was unfinished business, Mm -hmm. um, and – yeah, so I just uh, I would train as much as I could. I'd be as fit as I could, so I could you know carry the heavy loads that you you carry in a war zone. And um, I would be training medically and doing whatever courses I possibly could. Every conceivable emergency medical course I could do, I did. Uh, and I'd just be playing situations and getting my equipment ready the whole time. And then, sure enough, they said, "Hey, in 2012, you're um, you've got this opportunity." And I'd just been promoted, so I was okay. then a, a team leader of about 15 people. So, yeah, I was raring to go back and do what I thought was unfinished business. But so, um, talk to me about unfinished business. Like, what was unfinished? There were more uh, lives to save, or there was what? Like, yeah. Well, I was actually. Um, in a situation in that first deployment where um, someone was uh, riding on a motorbike um, really quickly towards where we were positioned. And usually, not, not usually, that can be potentially a suicide bomber coming to, you know, ride a, a explosive laden vehicle into um, into your vehicle or, or roadblock or whatever. Um, so, yeah, someone was approaching uh, our location really quickly and I had looked at him through the sights of my weapon and I thought you know this is the situation I could be doing this um, and for whatever reason um, it, he, he suddenly turned around and rode away just as quickly as he was approaching us but to, in my mind I was really angry at the situations I was finding myself in um, and so I just pictured that uh, event happening again and me doing something about it like shooting that person so Mm -hmm. for that whole time i just was um wanting to be back in that situation and it's probably you know you could probably call it revenge but whatever it was i felt like i wanted to go back and and take out that anger on someone that someone like that i see so basically you were living and breathing it even though you weren't there anymore exactly um and um professor bessel van der kolk not sure if you've come across him, but he's written a book called The Body Keeps a Score, and he describes people as being hijacked by their past um, in, in post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's exactly what it was. I was living in that moment for, for a long time. Okay. And so what was the impact of that, that vision, those experiences on your kids? I know you said you had a short fuse, but like, how did that play out? How did it impact your relationship with your wife, for example? Uh, it was a, a huge challenge for my wife, and I was really lucky that she didn't take the kids and walk away. We would be, um, uh, I guess, they were really understanding, but the the impact on them was 
well, firstly, the knowledge that Daddy, you know, has been to war and, and, and war makes Daddy sad. And, you know, I would cry at the drop of a hat and just be really um, emotionally uh, invested in everything and sort of overly, overly emotional about things and um, lots of yelling at the kids for things that really don't matter, like leaving their, kid, their toys on the floor or, yeah, right. lots of things like that. Yeah. Okay, uh, so you were you were easily triggered, and you weren't all that present. Yes, yep, completely. Okay, so do you, so do you think like you you report having post traumatic stress disorder? That so it was it was activated at that point, but yeah, you still went back. Yes, yep. Um, okay. I I yeah, I wanted to be able to um, get on and do those things, and in the military, there's a. Um, there's a stigma attached to mental health and there's at the time there was not many people who had put their hand up and said, you know, this has affected me in this way. I, I probably am not okay. Um, and, you know, and, and getting diagnosed and stuff. So I was just a person who just denied all, all of those things, um, wanting to get on with the job. So why is that? Why is there so much stigma attached to that? Does that mean you're not tough? Like what, where does that come from? Yeah, it is. It's about, um, well, the military, you, you, trying to be not necessarily the best, better than everybody else, but um, trying to be reliable and good at what you do so people can t can trust you to do your job. So um, if you are turning around and saying, oh, I've got a mental health disorder, that just puts you out on a, um, a different sort of playing field, I guess. You're not going to be able to be part of the team and can people trust you anymore? And what can you even do anymore? Can we? Are you going to take medication? Um, so, yeah, right. there's a huge stigma attached. Okay, so so you go back. It's 2012. You're back. You're still kind of let's call it your brain's a little uh, occupied with this yep. idea of let's call it revenge. So how how does that play itself uh, out on this deployment? Yeah, so on that deployment, I guess it the, the the lead up to it that was what all that was on my mind. But as soon as we got there, we hit the ground running, and there was just um, one event after another. And there would be, um, you know, like I said, there'd be a, a mass casualty event, which is sort of an event where there's more um, casualties than you have the, the the facilities to treat at the time. So there would just be one after one after another. Um, we would get a radio call saying you know there's this many people coming in and then another event was happening in another area and we would just be overwhelmed physically overwhelmed by what we could we could possibly do and it would be you know things like i said there was groups of children uh there would be people innocent people in markets and and things like that so yeah or children uh picking up explosive devices not realizing what they were uh things like that so charles like sounds like you were physically taxed. Did they take care of you? Did you get any rest? How did you manage to keep yourself going physically? Yeah, so I, my, my, um, my way of coping and, and of, of keeping in the game was to overtrain. I'd go to the gym at 2 o'clock in the morning because I was wide awake and I'd go uh, and do, you know, whatever hardcore, heavy, high-intensity session I could and, yeah, I'd be wide awake. Um, and that was just how it was. If I and then I'd go for a walk or drink coffee. <laughs> right. Um, so it wasn't. So you sleeping. didn't sleep. No sleep. Okay. So how long were you there for? Six months. Six 
six months and you came home. And then when did the, let's call it the shit hit the fan and you decided, okay, I need a little help. Um, it was identified as I was on my way home. So I, we stopped off in a, a location to do debriefing and things like that and hand our equipment back. Um, and it was identified by the, the psychological um, team there that I needed follow-up. So that was straight away. We knew that there was going to be a, a problem. So when I got home, I was um, seeing a psychologist weekly. Um, and I guess, again, I just wanted to stop going to the psychologist and get on with my job. So I stopped going. I said, yeah, no, things are fine and I seem to be okay now. And yeah. So basically you ditched the psychologist. Yes. Yeah. The psychologist wasn't helpful in your. No, no, it wasn't helpful. But you weren't really, you were still feeling the aftermath. So, and, and I just want to stay on this subject for a minute because we've heard the term post-traumatic stress disorder lots and lots of times. So what is it? Is, the, is it the replaying of old memories that just don't go away? Is it an emotional entrapment? Like, I don't know. I, describe it for me. Sure. Um, so, yeah, intrusive thoughts, the replaying of 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 memories that you really don't want to um, remember anymore, um, being emotionally taxed, just constantly, um, you know, crying at the drop of a hat. And my kids would say, mommy, come on, dad's crying. And they'd all cuddle me and stuff. But, uh, and also there's a, an inability to, to have a, a healthy concept of the future. So your imagination of what the future is going to be like is really crappy. So I would think that, uh, if we're going to go to the shopping center, I'll take my kids to the food court and I would just expect that something bad was going to happen. Someone was going to seal off the food court and sh- and blow us all to pieces. Or if we're at a football game, I would I would feel like there was something bad was going to happen. I'd, I'd hold all my kids close to me. So, yeah, a really lousy ability to to plan for the future without something bad happening. I see. So you were in a state of paranoia to some degree. Completely, and I would, I would feel like I, I could barely string words together. I couldn't, you know, finish in, intelligent sentences. Um, I and because of all these things, I felt a lot of shame um, because I was supposed to be, you know, this big tough soldier that handles these things and looks after his family. And mm-hmm. so I felt ashamed, and I thought my family is so much better off without me. Um, I should really just do everyone a favor and kill myself. Goodness. So. I mean, did you talk to your wife? What, like, what was her reaction to your, you know, the way you showed up? Um, she's a, my wife's a police officer. Um, so she is no stranger to trauma and, and shitty situations. But yeah, she, she knew that there was something wrong. But mm-hmm. these things sort of pan out gradually. So it wasn't like I woke up one day and everything was crazy and, uh, we went, hey, let's fix this. It was just building up over time. And she said, you really need to get some help. Um, and it was when I first started visualizing um, ways to kill myself, we said, hey, let's go. And I went to the doctor and um, started on medication, which turned out to be the wrong medication, but it was it got the ball rolling towards the right path. Okay. So you shared your visions of suicide with your wife. You said I could do it this way or I could do it that way. Like you were open yeah. about it. Okay. I, I'm not, it's not super open. I told her about it and it was, it was horrifying for her. So it was hard for her to hear. 
Um, so I tried not to, you know, tell her every time I was thinking about it because it was, you know, most of the day, every day for maybe six months. Um, yeah. And so So what stopped you from pulling the trigger? Um, my family, they just, I would look at them and think I, um, need to take myself out of the situation to stop hurting them. And then I'll right. realize I could I could see what it's like. I have lost friends um, who are veterans to suicide, uh, and knowing you know what it's so dramatically like for everyone around them, it just is is horrifying for everybody. So yeah, I just would there would be that one little I guess um, voice in my head saying there's there's another way, there's a better way. Okay, so what was the way, and how did it show up? Um, my wife said to me try this yoga class it was just an online yoga class um designed for people for that are having grief um so yeah i just did this one class and i was like wow there is something there i didn't know what it was there's something there that is awesome so i started doing that same one video every day every morning when i'd get up and i just physically and and emotionally and mentally felt changes and i've started to feel better not 100 percent better but I knew that I was on definitely on the right path. Okay, so what is the difference between regular yoga and yoga for people who have experienced grief? Yeah, there's so many different types of yoga. So people might associate yoga with doing handstands on the beach and having a, an amazing body or um, doing hot yoga in a hot room. But um, yoga for grief and trauma is um, very gentle and um and invitational, so it's not you know get up on the on your hands and do a handstand. It's it's uh, if it feels comfortable for you, you might now um, bend forwards and breathe in or breathe out. So it's just really invitational and and supportive and ex- experiential. So looking back now, because you've been doing that for a few good years, yep. and in fact you offer yoga classes at this point. Yes. So what is the healing factor associated with this particular kind of yoga? Like, you know, if I, if I think about our audience, maybe they haven't been through the same kind of trauma that you have been through, but many of us need healing. So I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So in trauma, um, there's physical change that happen to your brain. So parts of the brain that only, come online and and light up when you're in a situation of danger, like you might be running across the road to avoid traffic. Um, There's a part of your brain that will go into overdrive that says says, um, you need to run quickly, otherwise you're going to get hit by a car. Um, In trauma, that part of the brain becomes bigger, physically grows bigger, and other parts of the brain that relate to imagination and and thinking about the future get smaller. Um, And so people who are traumatized have a, a a brain that is driving their body as though they're in danger all the time. So um, coaching and Hello. and um, talk therapy and things like that work as a, a top-down, a brain-down-to-body okay. approach, whereas yoga okay. and, and body work like Tai Chi work from bottom up. So it's a way of um, moving gently with the body and, and experiencing things that physically change the brain uh, and, and allow that that um, smoke detector in the brain to, to switch off and put you back in the green zone instead of being in the red zone, the fight or flight zone. So um, you've been doing it for how many years? It's 2017. You started in 2000 um, and let's call it 10. Yes. Yep. Um, so yeah, about three years I've been teaching yoga. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. And how, how are you? Like, do you still have moments of memory? Do you still have lapses where you're emotionally uh, out of balance? Like how, how do you feel overall? I um, feel, I, I still have the, the intrusive thoughts. I still have nightmares, especially on um, calendar events. Like the, I remember when things happened to me in Afghanistan uh, or when mates were killed or um, things like that, or, you know, Memorial Day or our equivalent, which is Anzac Day. Um, so I still have those bad days and, and intrusive thoughts and stuff, but I have a coping mechanism now. Um, and so instead of being upset by something and that keeps me awake for days, um, I can recognize that thing and say it was an awful thing that happened and you are lucky to be alive and you've got a beautiful family and a, and a great life. So, um, yeah, my ability to cope with the, the, the symptoms is so much better. Okay. And how has your relationship altered since you started yoga and teaching yoga? Um, so yeah, my relationship with my wife is is never been better. Um, <clears throat> I'm 40 years old now, and uh, I, uh, leading up to the age of 40, I thought, "Wow, 40 is old." Um, but, I'm yeah, thinking well, it's I, young. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's. I'm just in a really lucky person in a really great time of my life, and I'm now able to to be the instead of being the person that's. A, a strain on our relationship be the person who can support my wife when she's having um crappy days in her job as a police officer okay and how about as a parent um as a parent as well yeah i can i can be more active instead of being you know absent um i can do things with my children and and they don't have to think about things in terms of our oh, daddy won't be able to go to that event because he's sad from Afghanistan or, right, right, um, right, you know, right. literally social events that we would have to up and leave because I wasn't coping like a, a really good friend's wedding and um, yeah, so social situations I wouldn't go to um, because I'd feel paranoid that people were looking at me or that something terrible was going to happen. We can do those things now. So we're all a really, um, really. Well, I'm sure. Family. I'm sure they were looking at you. You're a pretty handsome guy. <laughs> yeah, they're only human. <laughs> they're only human, exactly. <laughs> um, so, are you teaching yoga strictly in person, or do you do any online or um, kind of virtual yoga? Yeah, I do. I do all. Um, face-to-face yoga. I've got about um, 25 videos on my website that people use um, and people use quite regularly, which is great. Okay. But yeah, all my stuff is pretty much face-to-face. Okay. So how do people find you? How, how do they track you down? What's your website? Sure. Um, my website is called healingenergyyoga.com. Okay. Um, and and any you know Google or whatever search engine search will will bring that up. Um, and then you've I've got a book that I've recently released and um, and videos and all that stuff. So it's very easy to find me. So say it again: healingenergy.com. Uh, healingenergyyoga.com. Sorry, healingenergyyoga.com. That's it. So you wrote a book very quickly. What's the book about? So it's called um, How to Heal with Your Tribe: PTSD, okay. Yoga, and Coming Home to Your Body kind of a long title. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's literally about people um, like myself who, uh, who need to be able to come home from war and heal. 
um, with the people around them and, and choosing the right people to be around and, and using yoga and, and recognizing, um, you know, things about time and, uh, um, you know, things that are going to influence your outcome. Uh, the habits you have, relationships you have, all those sort of things. So just covering those things and um, that's been out for a month. So Amazing. Um, do you find that a lot of soldiers are open to yoga or are they a little resistant? No, they are resistant. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, the, the, there's people who uh, have been um, really suffering um, with post-traumatic stress disorder and, and some of them, you know, People who were in the Vietnam War, it's, it, it might have been five decades that they've been struggling for or longer. Um, and, you know, people in the Korean War and uh, World War II veterans, so long time of suffering. And the people who have, have sort of been hit the worst tend to want to do anything they possibly can to to feel better. So they're usually an easy sell, I guess, it would be one way to call it, to get them into yoga. And once they try the, the, the types of yoga that I do, um, they're just – um, I'm amazed. I guess they're just blown away that they're able to um, feel themselves again and and you know be able to sleep with that medication and things like that. So, are your classes mostly men? Yes. Yep. So I, I do a couple of public classes, but most of my work is with veterans that are in either inpatients in hospital or in a, a PTSD program as an outpatient in hospital. Um, and I work with a couple of veterans charities as well. So yeah, definitely okay. mostly men. Before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. You have a coach on the line. And I know that, you know, say uh, your therapist and coaching, the head stuff didn't altogether work for you. But you have a coach on the line. It's free, no charge. (laughs) Um, Is there a question that you have for this coach? I do. And firstly, let me just um, not try. I definitely don't want to offend you with uh, the talk therapy. um, Oh, no, I don't mind. Okay. So, yeah, I definitely do have a question. Um, how do you start to help people who either don't realize they need help or they don't think they can be helped? So, um, so, so when I coach people, uh, you know, usually I coach people who are looking for help. But even so, um, one of the most valuable elements of our coaching is through the process of journaling. So we get our clients to journal every single day for the duration of the coaching period. And what that allows us to do is invite people to tell their stories. What we also do is help them to identify the meaning or the beliefs they have that are associated with these memories or past experiences. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my clients, she wasn't in war, but as a, as a teenager, she was kind of sexually assaulted when she was at camp. And that lived with her on into the years. And so the question is, let's go back there. Let's replay it. What exactly happened? And, and what, did, what did it mean to you when it happened? What does it mean to you now? But why do you think it happened? And part of it for her was that she was carrying the story that she was responsible for, for that. And so what we do when we coach people is we try to really understand their vantage point. You know, you talked about the feeling of shame, right? That's a good one. You talked about, I felt shameful because as a soldier, I'm supposed to be X, Y, and Z. I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to, you know, kind of be the man in the house, et cetera. You have that story in your brain and that story, those beliefs are what cause you the pain. 
And so my job as a coach is to first hear the story and understand where you're coming from, understand your perspective, and then shed light on it. Because a lot of people who live with shame don't share where they're coming from. Like they don't share what they feel shameful about. It's too hard. It hurts too much. So they keep it in and that makes the shame even worse. It grows. And so what I want to do with my clients is help them tell their stories. And then we want to look at the stories and really start to sort through it. Because what I discovered is a lot of storytelling, a lot of what people share is fictional. It's invented, right? So you decided it's shameful for you to feel the way you did, but was it shameful? You just felt the way you did. Was, do you understand what I'm saying? And so what we want to do is challenge the way people think, not in a confrontational manner, but help them to heal from their perspectives of what happened, not from just what happened. Yeah. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. I really like that. Yeah. So, so the journaling process, so what happens, right, I just want to stay on this for one more second, is that when you journal, so let's say you were my client and you would you journal, your journal would come back to me every single day. So we would be talking through journaling every single day. And every time you journaled, I'd ask you more questions, right, because I want to get at the core essence of your beliefs because your beliefs are what trigger your memories or your paranoia or whatever. Right. So we're doing two things. A, I'm learning about you. I'm understanding how you think. I'm getting access to your perspectives and your beliefs and your values and your view of the world. But we're also doing something else is that we're building a relationship because we're in contact every single day. And the stronger the relationships get, the more you trust, the more willing you are to go to those dark places and expose them. And it's the dark places that need to be exposed in order for them to heal. Yeah, that's that's great. I really um, I really resonate with that. My the best psychiatrist that I had um, used to get me to journal, and he would uh, really look at all those. Yeah, it was great. Exactly what we said. So yeah, who knows? Maybe one day we'll partner and we'll help each other help the people out there. I like it. That sounds great, Kim. All right. Any other questions? No, that's been fantastic. All right, Charles, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, for sharing your time, for uh, going to those deep, dark places today. And my hat's off to you for your service and for your recovery. I mean, uh, you know, obviously yoga plays a big role in people's health and healing. And you're on the forefront, particularly with a crowd who is resistant. You know, I, I congratulate you in every way. Thank you, Kim. I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to be on the show. And also just thanks to all the listeners for for sticking with them to listen to my story. Thank you. So the journaling component of this whole journey has just been paramount. It has allowed me as a client to dump everything that was in my head. It has resonated with me extremely well. And I find this to be a model that is so applicable to so many different people. It really gets to the core of things that might be holding you back. So for me, that's been one of the most profound things uh, and learnings about frame of mind coaching. And my coach really showed me my potential. And, you know, with the journaling in combination with, you know, building this extraordinary relationship, I realized what I have to offer the world. And um, I loved it so much that I'm trained to become a coach myself. You've been listening to Resilience Radio, 
Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. For more information about Frame of Mind Coaching, visit frameofmindcoaching.com.